Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. And today we have the special Dad, honor. Today we have the special honor of introducing, of interviewing Mr. Flavio Moraise. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Just Morrissey. Morrissey, sorry. My bad. All right, so uh, Flavio, can you first tell us how you uh, first got into reptiles? Man, um, I guess when I was a little kid, some of my earliest memories uh, with my grandfather walking around catching frogs at streetlights here in Florida. And, um, you know, growing up, you know, catching snakes and turtles around ponds, lizards, that sort of thing. And, you know, it just kind of grew into, you know, when you get a little bit older, you grow up, what am I going to be when I grow up, you know? And um, I think right out of high school, I started working at uh, Gatorland professionally. And even before that, when I was in high school, I worked at a fish farm and um, a biologist, the head biologist at the fish farm, he was a herper. And uh, he worked at uh, St. Augustine Alligator Farm uh, back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And uh, he taught me a little bit more. And um, I got my start, though, professionally at uh, Gatorland. I worked there for about uh, 18 years. So were you into um, alligators already, or is that just something that kind of popped up as an opportunity, and that's how you got into it? Well, I'll tell you what, um, when I was a kid growing up in Florida, man, we didn't see alligators much. Um, you know, back in the 70s, you know, they were endangered at the time. They didn't really get taken off the endangered species list until the same year I started working with alligators professionally, and that was in 88. So once they got taken downlisted, you started seeing them, but... I mean, we swam in creeks and ponds, and man, you rarely saw an alligator. So I didn't have um, the opportunities to work with them, and there wasn't that many places, or people didn't have that many alligators at home or what have you back then, or hobbyists, you know, of sorts, because they were uh, restricted um, for permitting. And then that was how I got started was at Gatorland, but I was into venomous snakes. I mean, I was die-hard venom constantly. And then um, I realized that we, we really don't know much about crocs and alligators. So um, I decided to go down, down that route and um, leave the venomous snakes behind. But um, I have some friends that still, you know, they pursued careers in that. And so I get, uh, I get my venomous snake urges occasionally and we do some field work. But um, yeah, and I started just working with alligators and crocs. Um, and I gained a lot of knowledge um, from you know, all sorts of mentors um, around this country and outside the country as I got older and um, learned quite a bit, but um, I, I really took an interest in uh, behavior management. So if you're managing, you know, five or 6,000 animals, you know, um, all sizes and different species, sometimes you have to, um, you know, be creative in how you manage them with people because, you know, as you guys know, if you work with crocs, you know, you have a chance of getting hurt or bit. <laughs> You know, nowadays, they have all the insurance, liability, you know, especially when you uh, start moving up the chain and the ladder, you know, that's where, you know, you're, you're forced. You have to have policies and how things. So we created a behavior management program at Gatorland, and, um, and we eliminated all accidents. We just got along with the crocs so well. We've learned how to communicate with them, ask them to do things, get out of the way when we need them to, and, you know, everything. I mean, we can collect eggs from an alligator right in front of her. She can watch us and participate and everything like that, even with some of the crocodiles, saltwater crocs, Cuban crocs, 
uh, Niles, a little bit of everything. So we did some amazing things that you normally wouldn't see a crocodile do um, in a captive situation. That's really cool. So was it was what you did with them like um, socializing them, or was it like uh, just understanding them better, or, or what? How would you describe like how you, um, you were able to get them like that? You know, back then it wasn't a common practice to train reptiles. You know, just like you would take your dogs out if you had if you ever go hunting and you hunted with dogs. You know, the dogs usually learn from other dogs. You know, they come out, but you train them. Bird dogs do the same thing. But um, I started hanging out. Uh, we had a new CEO come into Gatorland at the time, and he was a killer whale trainer. And he's a he's from Texas. He um, worked at uh, San Antonio Sea World and worked at I think he worked in San Diego, but he he did killer whales. So. I had kind of an influence from that, and um, by that way, I learned, man, just how to basically train them, so communicate, not really socialize them, but just like you would any other animal if you're training a dog to, you know, go outside to go to the bathroom or to sit, stay, turn around, do whatever you need to do. You're basically using positive reinforcement, we would use negative reinforcement, and other means. Um, a lot of people that just get started training uh, animals, like if you train your, your snake at home or your lizard, things of that nature, you know, it starts with you just got a pair of forceps and you got a little pinky hanging off or some piece of food and you dangle it right in front of them and they grab it. Well, if you dangle it right in front of them, they usually will meet you, they'll come to you, and when they do that, the last thing that they did is what they're getting rewarded for. So if they're jumping, you're basically teaching each time um, but you can also apply a cue with that you can say jump right before he does it or she does it and when that animal jumps and gets rewarded next time you do it you don't even need the forceps or the food you can just ask them to jump and they will jump and then you can give them a reward just like an attaboy almost or a pat on the back just like you would a dog good boy pat them you know and that works just as fine so that's kind of how it works with the crocodile, same exact way, same method. Um, it depends on how f you can move very quickly with crocs. They're really smart. They're they're almost as fast as training dogs. Wow. You know, sometimes you have a, a dumb dog, and sometimes you have a smart dog that you can't keep up with. Well, it's the same way with crocodiles. Trust me, those Cuban crocodiles were like that. You had to stay five, ten steps ahead, or if not, they would meet you, <laughs> and you weren't ready for it. And they would, they would really scare the shit out of you a lot of times. And um, saltwater crocodiles are pretty smart, too. And uh, one of the smartest ones I've worked with have been American crocodiles, the ones we have here in the United States and Central um, um, Mexico and all, you know, all throughout the Caribbean. Those are pretty smart. And that's what I just got done doing this weekend. I um, went to uh, Belize. There's a study site I've been working with uh, for about three years. And three years ago... There was about 30 animals in about an acre of water, or a little over an acre of water, and um, they were going to have problems with human-crocodile conflict there. And um, the government wanted to try to, they heard that we can possibly train them. These are wild crocs, um, train them to stay away from people. So that was our primary goal, train them to um, see people, stay away from them, and also avoid capture. Um, I, I know you guys have tried to catch something in your life, whether it's a crocodile or anything else. When it gets away from you, 
it can get it, it can do it again. It gets better and better at it. So that's basically what we're doing is teaching the crocs to get away, um, not actually catch them and make them submit, and that helps with them to avoid capture. Um, remember earlier we were talking about feeding the animal and you telling the animal to jump. Well, what we do is we create associations with the almost captures we call them. And um, that is not positive reinforcement we're using. We're actually using positive punishments. So we're applying um, that punishment to them by trying to catch them. And then we associate um, that whole, um, you know, catching or, you know, that, that negativity in their lives with the uh, people that actually feed them. So we get people just like them. We also bring equipment. Uh, the equipment are just fishing poles. So you just bring a fishing pole with you because that's how you catch them. And then afterwards, you know, within two to three days, all you have to do is walk up to the water's edge and show them a fishing pole, and they, they scatter, and they start to go away. And then when the people try to feed them or interact with them, they don't even come near them at all because we just have someone stop in once or twice a day. If you do that every day, you're not getting reinforced for being there anymore with food. So they tend to diffuse. And so it's worked, and we, I go and check it out at least once or twice a year. So after three years, it's worked just for a three-day tryout, you know? It worked out pretty cool. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that's so really cool. we can apply this in the wild now. So, you know, all the animals like the nuisance trappers get alligators, crocodiles, stuff like that. We can actually uh, train these animals to stay away from people. It's not going to work in every single case, but it's another way to prevent them from being destroyed, I guess you could say. Do you find when you're, um, so when you train like these gators at like Gatorland, do you find that they'll only respond to you or, or do they do that with everyone? Because like when I, when I worked at the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, yeah. um, they were, they had to go into the gator pen to get something and they were trying to tell it, it kept coming near them. They were telling them no, but it wouldn't really listen until Jim came out and Jim has trained it its whole life and stuff and he said no it like whenever he told it to do anything it, it listened to Jim but didn't really seem to listen to anyone else well that's like anything you know if, if someone has more of a better relationship if you have a bunch of animals and there's one person has a better relationship with those animals than anyone else that's going to happen no matter what so it's, whenever we did the program for Gatorland you got to understand it's a corporation so I didn't build the training program for Flavio. I built it for Gatorland. So when I walk away at any time, let's say I leave tomorrow, or when I did leave, then I left that training program there. It should be able to work for anybody. So that was some of the things that we did. We implemented that anybody can train. My role was directing it and applying the training outside, and I would have people do it. Because not everybody is a good trainer. Some people just don't know how to do it. It's timing. That's like having someone tell a joke. They can't tell jokes. You sh they shouldn't be telling jokes. Well, they shouldn't be a trainer either because timing is everything when you're doing training. As I said earlier, when you feed an animal and you give it that positive reinforcement, if you miss, then you didn't give it that positive reinforcement. It could backfire on you. You can lose your training that you've applied already. So same thing uh, at, the, at your uh, place where you worked. Those animals worked with that person so much they're so familiar and associated with them probably some respect or positive uh actions in their lives that they'll do anything for him and i've seen that with uh, crocs and gators someone you know these animals will do anything for them and I also have been to other facilities where they absolutely hate the owner or the person that works with them you know 
So, and I'm sure if you guys have been around the block, you've seen that too, where, you know, oh, you yeah. may have beat the hell out of the animal or something like that. And then, you know, they don't, those animals don't want to go near them or do anything for them. Yeah. So is that a lot of what you do now is, um, working with, uh, like behavioral behavioral stuff with with crocodiles and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, I do that for consulting. I do um, consulting at zoos um, where um, I, I work with either behavior issues. Um, I was in zoo management, so I can do finance. I can do anything, you know, uh, especially in uh, small like family owned uh, operations around the country. I've worked in um, you know almost a hundred different facilities um, in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Just helping them along with acquiring animals. I know all the uh, no licensing very well and the laws federally, um, states, what well, all the states in the U.S. as well. It's what I kind of do. And if someone needs help with permitting, I help them with permitting. You know that's a big one, especially for young people that want to get involved and have their own animals. When they're like, man, I can't get a permit. And, um, and a lot of times, if you don't know the law and know how to work it, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get it. So a lot of times, people hire me to say, hey, I need this permit. And I go, okay, when do you want it? How do you want it? And I'll have to ask a lot of questions to get you there. Like, let's say you wanted to run, you know, you wanted to import some crocodiles from Asia or something. Um, it's, a, it's a lengthy process. It may take you a year to do that. Um, because especially with COVID right now, it's a pain in the butt to just do licensing, especially with the federal government. State governments aren't so bad. So those are some of the sorts of things that I do. I also do uh, raise money for conservation. I don't know if you guys ever heard of CrocFest or not. Yeah, I have. Um, Croc, I, you guys are out in Texas, right? What part of Texas are you guys from? Uh, I'm actually uh, from Ohio, but I've done several internships in Texas. Ohio, you went, you went to work over in Texas. Okay, cool. I've done a so few you're getting yeah. to do a CrocFest. Texas, yeah. Over yeah, at, yeah, I'm uh, planning on going there this year. Place, uh, yeah, that, I actually interned okay. there two so, years ago. That's a really good place. Nice. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a cool place. And then, um, you know, they, they, um, they're going to postpone it because of COVID, which is fine. Um, I believe we're still going to do a croc fest this winter. We usually do one here in Florida in the summer and one in the winter. Um, and we haven't uh, nailed down our winter facility yet. We just had our uh, record-breaking CrocFest. Uh, we made over $100,000. So since we've been doing CrocFest, we've raised almost a million dollars for crocodile conservation for all kinds of species. Um, this past one was for the Indian gharial. I don't know if you guys ever been to India or know anybody from India or any of those conditions over there. It's pretty poor. And you have this monster croc. I mean, that's like the one of the biggest reptiles in the world. I mean, salty just out you know, competes them or out is bigger because they got a big head. But those gharial are really neat, and behaviorally speaking, they're awesome, man. They they do sh shit that you you can't fathom for parenting, especially for parenting. They're really cool, very successful. But pollution is the main culprit over there. I mean, they're just uh, you know they throw their dead bodies in the water. Um, they bathe the water. They mine the sand. And those crocs need sand to lay their eggs, so they're they're hole diggers, not nest builders like alligators are. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to go to croc the that croc fest in. Okay, cool. In, I, I live in Florida. I, I live in Fort Myers, but um, I actually completely okay. forgot about it, so I missed it. But <laughs> okay. I'm going to be at Fort Myers all this week, Matt. I'm going to a conference down there, so everyone uh, meet up. Yeah, for sure, definitely. We'll have to meet up. All right, cool. But yeah, um, I, you know, I've been. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, um, 
So I'm, I'm Central Florida person. I've never spent much time on the West Coast of Florida, but right now, since COVID, I have uh, taken on the director over at the Sarasota Jungle Gardens right now, and I've been doing that for about a year. And um, we're uh, we're making some changes there. We just got a new crocodile um, the other day, a female croc, uh, American crocodile for um, our male that we have there. So we're hoping to do some breeding here soon with that too. So you mentioned you do some uh, conservation work with American crocodiles. Uh, can you go into more detail about that? Yeah, so a few of the countries that um, that um, I've worked with, uh, those have been Belize and also Jamaica. Jamaica is an interesting country. It's really uh, it's a challenge to work there. Um, the culture there is not like um, other cultures that you visited and uh, the, the American crocodiles having a hard time there right now, um, and um, there's a lot of conservation issues too with um, habitat loss. A lot of the coastal areas, and um, you know, and a lot of it has to do with politics with China and the uh, Jamaican government. So there's always some sort of corruption involved. Now they're finding uh, people starting to eat the crocodiles, which they've never eaten the crocodile before in Jamaica. So that's going to make it a little bit more difficult. But um, I participate with helping um, out with uh, Head Starting, and we've also raised money through CrocFest over there as well. Um, I, I went to Jamaica earlier this year, and we were applying the same methods I was talking about earlier, using training methods to uh, prevent the crocodiles from attacking people. There was a section, um, an area um, just outside of Kingston, that had crocodiles and people started feeding dogs to the crocodiles there. It was wow. like, yeah, and um, it was, you know, it was a problem. They were, you know, posting it on the internet and things like that. So it started accelerating. <laughs> and then, you know, next thing you know, it's like their entertainment during COVID was to uh, feed the dogs out. And that's just a matter of time before someone says, well, let me throw a person down in here and do this, you know. Uh, but anyway, we started working there and doing the crocs and doing the same method and teaching the uh, government uh, officials there. And um, they're they're kind of a uh, animal, you know, you know, like U.S. Fish and Wildlife equivalent. It's called NEPA, and um, those guys are really fun. I stay in contact with them um, on a regular basis, and um, and I think that they're getting ready to do some uh, survey work and survey the whole country and start tracking some of the animals to see, you know, how they're moving around and. And that as well so there are some efforts there um, but it's been a challenge the other place I work quite a bit and I go a couple of times a year is Belize and uh, Belize is um, a cool country because they're really progressive they want to help out and help you know try not to kill the animals um, another country that uh, we're going to this fall is the uh, Dominican Republic um, and work there I would like to go to Haiti too um, Haiti's a really uh, you know bad off as well so when you go to some of these countries where, you know, they don't have a lot of resources, it's pretty tough to apply some con your typical conservation methods because they just don't have the money and they're hungry, man. You can't expect them to just, I don't want to eat to save a crocodile, you know, so it's a challenge. And um, I have been to Cuba too, but Cuba's closed right now. We were going to go to Cuba and do some work, um, the same method using the uh, training. Um, so. I'm excited to keep doing this and uh, teach other people how to do it. And then that way um, it's an alternative other than, you know, capturing the animal and destroying it, you know, especially for some of these uh, these cool crocodiles out there. Even alligators. Um, 
I may have a chance to uh, work with alligators in the same method in the wild here in Florida, which is kind of cool. That's really cool. I, I really like how that's it. Um, it how it's 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 a tactic that poorer countries can do to help uh, uh, yeah. the, the crocodiles and stuff. That's yeah. It doesn't cost anything, man. It's like a fishing pole and a hook. I mean, I usually when I go, I I try to get people to donate. You know fishing poles and good, I mean, not a cheap-ass reel, reel that can handle, uh, you know, three, four to 500-pound croc, and then that way I can leave it there for them and teach them how to use it, and believe it or not, a lot of these uh, Caribbean countries and that, they don't use fishing poles, they use hand lines, so they have no clue um, all the time how to use a fishing pole, so they just have different methods of fishing, they're like, man, I've never used a fishing pole before. But uh, once they use it, get the hang of it, then you know they're they're excited about using it. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's 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 what I've been up to these days, and um, you know, and it, it's it's always fun. I've transported crocs all over the place, and um, teach people how to catch, teach people how to train them. But um, found that um, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of different things you can do with crocs out there. So outside of crocodilians, is there? Uh... Any other sort of zoological or herpetological work that you do? Um, you know, I, have, I had a buddy that um, he went uh, FSU, got his PhD at FSU. He used to do a lot of venom work. And um, I've helped him over the years when I get a chance. Um, you just know colleagues that, you know, are out in the field and do different things. Um, and I used to do Eastern Diamondback work with him all throughout, like, the Southeast and I, I've always loved Eastern Diamondbacks, one of my favorite snakes. And I like I'm a I'm a cottonmouth hound too. I can I can watch cottonmouths all day. There's a place I go if I just want to get away from it all, and I can just sit all day and just follow cottonmouths around. It's a pretty dense population I go to and just watch them. And man, I've seen them eat, feed on deer carcasses and bite turtles for carrion. Um, I've seen them just you know just gobble up snakes and stuff just right next to them for no reason. All just all kind. Of, they're they're just fun to watch. But um, I'm gonna. I, I've done some turtle work too. Um, yeah, some alligator snapping stuff, turtle stuff, and then um, I have uh, our last beneficiary, um, Jeff Lang, Dr. Jeff Lang. He's doing some Blandings turtle work up north, and I've always wanted to work with those. So he invited me uh, next year when he goes out at his study site to go do that. But I mean, if you guys ever had a chance to do field work, you know, sometimes it's pretty rough and sometimes it's cushy. It depends on where you're doing it. But um, I've been in some rough situations where, you know, that the nature is not for nice to you. you know, it's hot or just cold, you know, freezing cold just depends on where you're at. But, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all interesting and fun and very challenging. And uh, you're always discovering something new as well. And I've been on expeditions where we found new species of herps before. That's a lot of fun, um, you know, especially down in uh, South America and that. And I really like the Americas. Uh, so I explored mostly the Americas, and that's something that I've always wanted to do since I was a kid, is to, you know, explore and find things. But, you know, I didn't get started until I was 31. I didn't re really didn't leave anywhere, go anywhere until then. So for the past 20 years, I've just been going as much as I can anywhere. So when you do um, venom work and stuff, is it uh, like venom research specifically, or is it more like into the behavior of the venomous reptile? Um, you know, I, I always wanted to do some of the behavioral stuff with venomous reptiles. Like, I have a behavioral plan to teach uh, venomous snakes to deliver venom on their own, on a cue, rather than 
grab them and you know extract the venom. Wow. Um, that way you can eliminate all the safety issues. Um, it, it would take me a couple of weeks to do to try to do that. Um, I just have never had a tr- had time to do it. And I wrote the training plan probably like twenty years ago. And um, it's just one of those things where I, I would love to work on a venom at a venom lab for a couple of weeks and do something like that. Um, but most of the stuff I've helped out with was evolution, more of uh, evolutionary biology, um, taking uh, venom in the wild. So we collect the animals, um, remove the venom, and then they would uh, study the venom and also um, rodents as well. So they were doing parallel studies with the evolution of the rodents in that same area that they would feed on and see what kind of resistance they had to the venoms in those areas. So they kind of did a, you know, a nationwide study on um, the, the venom types out there. So it's pretty interesting. You know, we've all know about like cane breaks and stuff like that here in North Florida and Eastern Diamondbacks with that type A venom. Well, there's other areas too that have it. So um, it, was, it was pretty interesting to, uh, you know, see some of the work that they were doing. But I would I was more of a tag along, you know, and we would just go out and hunt, you know, Eastern Diamondbacks, collect them. Um, bring them back, do all the morphometrics on them, and then uh, take some venom, um, you know, and, you know, freeze it and bring it back to the lab. And they would just continuously do uh, work with that, but it was all on evolutionary biology. Did they find at all, do you know if, uh, they did they find rodents at all becoming um, resistant a little bit to them? Wow. You know, and it was really neat when we did that. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember my first, you remember I was telling you guys earlier when I was, first getting into business or whatever I was in the venomous snakes and I remember meeting uh, Bruce Means um, you know he was up at FSU and he's he was an interesting guy he did all the stuff with Eastern Diamondbacks and then there's another guy named Walt Timmerman he did some stuff with Eastern Diamondbacks and this is all these are all the guys back in the 80s 70s and 80s that did all that sort of thing and some of the 90s and then other people just picked it up from there but uh, when I first met those guys I mean they were doing all kinds of work and you know, talk to them a little bit here and there, but um, and then you would meet some uh, interesting folks out there that really knew a lot about Eastern Diamondbacks that you'd never hear about. You know, they never publish anything or write, but uh, they're just good herpers in general, and they can just take you out and show you all kinds of cool stuff. So, hanging out with all of those uh, types of people, you know, you get to learn um, a lot uh, just on how to, you know, do the science, you know, collect data. And do the do the whole nine yards. So that's that's kind of you know, in a nutshell, you know where where it comes from. Do you um you may not know anything about this because it seems like you're more into like the the what the uh, East Coast snakes. But I I read this article about um Mojave rattlesnakes and how there's um a population in Arizona. I, I guess there's like a a large population that has one type of venom and then like a small population within that that hasn't completely or not a completely different but like a, just a, a different type of venom do you, do you know anything about that like why why that is um, there's um it's the same way as it is here in florida it's almost the same um, thing it's usually geology so in uh if you go to north florida and if you're from fort myers you know that you know florida was not always um this big it, used, it was exposed and there was a river that went all the way up into the Appalachians. You know, the Apalachicola River kind of is part of that or whatever, but it would come all down. That's why Venice is filled with all those fossils down there. 
and you got all those fossils, that was kind of like the, the delta, you know, drop-off points, and there's just all these bodies that were just dropped right there. Well, that right there was a division line. You have the Appalachian Mountains, and then you have the, the Atlantic Coastal Plain, and also the Mississippi River Valley. So you have that big convergence in that area. That's why the venom is uh, much different there. So the geology has a lot to do with uh, um, some of these things. And, and go back what you were asking for earlier, when we go to some islands, we went to, for instance, we went to Georgia. We went to one island up there, and the animals were giant. You know, they were all like, you know, a five-and-a-half-foot animal would weigh like eight, nine pounds, just just massive, right? And then we'd go to another island on the panhandle of Florida, and uh, those animals were like, you know, we knew that they'd been collected before and they had the data on them. They were like 20-year-old animals, but their max length was, you know, like 28 inches. And they were, they were flat-out adults, but didn't have the weight on them or anything like that. And it's because of those islands where they didn't have a lot of nutrition on them. They were sandy, you know, scrub islands. And so, just, so those rodents there didn't have a lot of nutritional value either. But not saying that that's why they're stunted in growth, but... It just those animals just don't have the need to get larger and that's that's what happened we found i think um i think they found like 12 or 14 in one gopher hole you know and the island didn't have a lot of support for many vertebrates i mean most of the time the you know a coyote would come over that was like the biggest vertebrate that would come over i don't think white-tailed deer came over there too often um but they would swim over and then they would leave so it, it just really depends. So that's the same thing out in Arizona, it's that geology. So sometimes you'll have a, a mountain range or some sort of uh, obstruction where uh, maybe there's a higher nutritional value through that uh, period has grown. So that's that's typically like a basic answer, I guess you can you know, find out. But I remember reading about that when I was younger too, about the Mojave, especially in Arizona. Those guys over there were like something you did not want to get bit by. Yeah. And then it's the same thing here in Florida. If you go to North Florida, you know, between that, you know, that Okefenokee Swamp and Gainesville, that's even worse than those ones out there. Out in Arizona, the Mojaves. And especially with the Eastern Diamondback and the Cane Brakes. So you mentioned you uh, do some, like, uh, crocodile transporting. Uh, so do zoos contact you purposely for that, or is that just something you kind of just fell into? Um, so, sometimes it depends, because uh, right now to transport um, crocodiles, you know, especially here in Florida, you need to be a licensed individual or a permit individual. It's not in all states, but you do. And if you're like in another uh, state and you're going to bring it into Florida, a lot of times, if there's going to be a transaction from an outstate or, you know, an outsider to insider or insider to outsider, sometimes they need help with that transport. Um, so that's where it usually comes into. And I just, I have transported a lot of animals in the past, every, you know, from just about every staff and out to California, transporting animals up to the Northeast, Minnesota, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, you know, West Virginia, you name it all over the place so um just it's how you transport it to uh, makes a lot of difference depends on the time of year. you got really a lot of heat the size of the animal makes a big difference i i remember my last the last thing i ever did at gatorland uh, my wife and i we were not married at the time she was my fiance we were up in new york city i got a call from this teacher and uh this teacher had uh when he first started he was i think he started 
started as a 24-year-old teacher, and he started a zoo in the basement of the school in Long Island, New York. But anyway, when he started the zoo, someone heard about it. They found this alligator over in Manhattan. I guess someone had an alligator, and they turned it loose, and actually found it in the sewer, right? So it was just a little guy at the time, and um, they gave it to him, and and he he was in this basement in the zoo. Anyway, the animal was about two and a half feet long originally, and um, this guy was retiring, and no teacher wanted to take it over, so now this animal's 11 feet long. And so he grew up in this basement, and we went in there. It was cold, man. It was like 40 degrees in the basement because it was like January 1st or something like that. It must have been like 15 degrees outside. And the only way to get out of there was to climb up these steps, like a basement steps on the outside, and they were covered in ice. So... You know, it's like, well, how do you bring this? And, and it's just me and my wife or whatever. And and we put it, in, it was in a tub, like a cattle tank or whatever. It was the water. And it could, couldn't even really submerge. The animal didn't look, you know, deformed or anything like that from not having sunlight or anything like that. But it, it was it was fairly decent. Kind of, you know, didn't, didn't have a lot of color to it. It was, you know, bleached out a little bit, just like a lot of alligators have in darkness. Anyway, I, I sent my fiance in, which right now her name's Bab. I said, why don't you jump the alligator? <laughs> so I made it in that. That water was cold, too. So she had to get in the water and get, get the animal secure. So we taped him up, and then we picked him up. He wasn't really bulky. You know, it was kind of nice and not having a big animal. Yeah, he was probably maybe like 220 pounds. We did have some helpers. And we had to kind of climb up those damn stairs, and it was like they were just covered in ice. There's just no friction at all, so it was pretty bad. But we finally got him up. But we transported him all the way to Florida to Gatorland, and we bring him down here. We put him in a pool, and um, the pool was filled up. He didn't have to swim. It was the funniest thing. This animal freaked wow. out because he couldn't swim. So I had to drain the water down real quick and kind of acclimate him to being in deep water because he's never been in deep water as you know, since he was a little guy. So it was kind of funny doing that. So that was like a, you know, tr- uh, one of those transport stories. Have you guys ever been to, um, what was it, um, Rep, uh, not Black Hills out there? At, um, you guys know Terry out in uh, South Dakota? No, I don't I've, Reptile Gardens. I've, Reptile Gardens. Been out there? I've heard of it. I've never been, though. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, that, that place is pretty cool, too. We had to transport some alligators there and then transport them back as well. And, um, you know, that was uh, interesting. That was interesting, to say the least. But, I mean, those animals up there, I mean, they barely get to be outside that long because it gets so cold. I mean, it starts getting cold, like, in about two more weeks. It's going to be almost too cold. They start bringing the animals indoors. Um, so there's different places that have challenges. And then another thing that I've noticed in a lot of zoos is um, uh, people don't know how to catch crocodiles anymore because it hasn't been passed down. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a that's a frequent thing why we transport them a lot too is because a lot of times they don't know how to catch them. And uh, that that's and it's funny. I mean, it, you, you probably think that's funny, but it's like man, don't know how to catch a croc. It's it's probably because of people getting sued and lawyers and workers comp and all these rules and. Mm-hmm. And things of that nature, um, and I like we just transported this this female American crocodile a couple of weeks ago from West Palm to Sarasota, and when we did that, I mean we didn't have to catch her, we had to help her because she was kind of you know big around the midsection, but we had trained her 
to go into uh, just a you know crate. So yeah. we just get in there, shut the door, pick her up, and go. But she couldn't fit in that crate uh, too well, so we had to like she climbed in. We just kind of had to push her in a little bit afterwards. But that that was the most that we ever had to do with it. And then we just brought her in and opened the doors up and she climbed out when we got back to the zoo. So she hasn't been touched other than we were putting her in. Um, so you could train your animals to, to get in and out of crates. You can, we, you know, we um, train them to do just about anything. I can pull blood from them. Um, you can put a camera, you know, endoscope down in their gullet while they're sitting there for you. I removed abscesses, did minor surgery, stuff like that. Just, you know, to try it to help out vets because a lot of times people don't know how to work with crocs. I mean, it wasn't really published that ivermectin is deadly to a crocodile, you know, and alligators. They just, they, they die. I mean, it didn't take much at all. So, but vets used to try to worm the alligators and crocodiles and they come in and would kill them, but they didn't publish it much. Hmm. Interesting. Why, why is that, do you think? Um, I don't know why it's poisonous. It's it's poisonous to some tortoises, also like indigo snakes, and king snakes. So there's a, there's a lot of reptiles that are, um, you know, have reactions to ivermectin. Panicare is good, but yeah, ivermectin just didn't do too well. So I mean, even like um, you know, big facilities they, they have all the resources. They they didn't know either. It's interesting. I've seen uh, one facility lose a bunch of Nile crocodiles one time. Huh. And that was that was probably about fifteen to seventeen years ago. Wow. So, um, I'm at, I'm at, so I'm actually like you. I'm really into the like the the behavioral aspect of, of reptiles. And so personally, um, my favorite is uh, like tegus and monitors. To I, I really like watching them just do their thing. So between like snakes and and crocodiles or gators, what crocodilians? What, what what's your what would be your favorite to just watch, to, to observe, behave? You know, I, I I watch anoles all the time, these brown anoles. I, matter of fact, I did a news piece the other day, and uh, there's a local weatherman that just moved to Sarasota, and he's unfamiliar with Florida, right? And he goes, can you tell me about these little lizards that are running around? And so, you know, and we did a whole news piece on them, but it was kind of neat because you kind of take them for granted because they're just running all over the place. But for 101, basic behavior 101 for herps, I mean, you got these big males that are, you know, communicating. They're doing their push-ups, their do-laps, head bobs, you know, whole nine yards. And if you go over to, like, um, you know, I don't know how many iguanas are down there where you're at there, Matt. But, you know, iguanas are fun to watch, too. I don't, you know, I was just in Belize over on the coast, and I was watching uh, all these uh, tinosaurs down there just having a blast with each other and saw some good fights and things of that nature. But uh, even the Varanids, you know, those are really cool. I've worked, when I first started doing training and, and that, I, I went around to a lot of different zoos and I recorded a lot of people working with Varanids. And one of the ones that really struck me the, the most and quick learning were the Mertens monitors, um, which is a small Varanid you know, probably less than two feet long when it's and it's aquatic. Yeah. Um, really smart lizard, and um, they have these cool abilities. So you can train them underwater, on top of the water, all kinds of. So they're they're pretty decent, and the parentes are are really smart too. I don't know if you had a chance to work with those. 
unfortunately uh, not. And, and tegus and yeah, tegus in general are amazing. I've seen some like tegus that were just like you know the family, you know, rag doll. Everybody just plays with them and you know everything else. And they and and it seems like they kind of cuddle up with just about anybody. They don't have a problem with certain certain ones. And my first experience with tegus, we had some uh, wild caught tegus. Um, this is back in the 80s that were confiscated and brought to Gatorland. So these were brought in from um, South America. And these were the nastiest things alive, and they never tamed down, man. They were just, they'd come in and grab hold of your pant leg and just shake it like a rag. <laughs> and uh, and they were they're funny. And they weren't big and bulky like those uh, black and white uh, tegus. They're uh, kind of sleek. They weren't very long, maybe like three feet long, but really, really slim animals. And man, they were so fast. They they ran like uh, our race runners here in Florida. You know, just this, that Nemodoffer has gone all over the place. So, um, yeah, so those are my experience. But I could watch tegus all day long too. Um, I, 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 you know, any of those teids are awesome. They they do all kinds of neat stuff. I'm mean, out watching them forage, and um, you know, I don't know if you ever watched them before, but they listen. They put their ear up to things. They're like, you know, if you ever see a woodpecker do that, they go, bop, 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 and then they put their ear up to it. The tegus do the same thing. They're like looking around, they're tasting, and then all of a sudden they stop and they put their ear up and listen. So they're always tasting and listening. Um, um, they're just really interesting, um, you know, especially for a terrestrial uh, animal. I've seen them get in and like leaf litter and just find a snake. I've seen them catch snakes and things before. They're pretty neat. Yeah, that's what, that's what, um, I love about tegus is literally you could just watch them all day and they're you, they're like they're like a, a dog almost like you could just like they like being pet underneath the chin they they actually seek some of that it's pretty cool um, and like you're saying like the the feeding behavior so so I have a tegu and I initially didn't um, plan on uh, target training it for like feeding or anything because I was I was handling it as much as I was feeding it but then there's a couple of weeks that went by. Um, when I after I first got it, that I wasn't able to like actually handle it. I only got to feed it, and it um, and, and as soon as it was like you were saying before, as soon as I actually went to go uh, feed it, and I had a friend, I was like, "Hey, want to watch?" And as soon as I went to go put my hand in there, it was going for my hand. It kept like, jumping up real high, going for my hand and everything. And it wasn't even going for the food, just for my hand. And so then I had to um, target train it, and they're smart. So it only took like a week or two before. I have this little orange thing. I just put it up next to the glass, and it's really cool because I can walk up next to it, and he he's perfectly fine. He just sits there. He's chill. I can pick him up. I can do whatever, and then like I can walk away and then come back with that orange thing. As soon as I put that up there, he it's it's so cool to watch him just uh, switch into that different mode, and, and and like or just like looking for where, you know where's the food and stuff. And I put the food in there. He doesn't try and bite my hand or anything, but I put the food in the hair. And just all, their their feeding response is so cool to watch. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, and you know, I've seen them go after like little beetles, grubs, and big things, and you know, and watch them pin things, and I've seen them people make mistakes and get bit by those things. And stuff, you know? So you, you see a lot what they're capable of doing. I've seen them drop their tails before. You really, know, pretty cool. Yeah, um, there was um, two of them fighting. And um, and it and the other one just barely grabbed that tail and it dropped at the base and it, the, the animal that lost its tail was the dominant animal in the area, so it was 
it was interesting to see. And um, and that animal even became uh, more ferocious without that tail. It was wow. It was amazing what it could do then. It just seemed like the tail limited it a little bit. But um, you know, watching some of that behavior is kind of interesting. Courtship behavior with them, all of that. And if you could see it in a wild setting, it's even more interesting. Um, you know, if you think about what the day in the life of a lizard, they don't have, it's not peachy king all the time. You know, they have to contend with predators, competitors, and then they have to find, um, you know, uh, some, some, some other animal to breed with, you know, that urge that they have. Um, and then they'll go do it at all costs, you know. So some, sometimes uh, some of these things are interesting to watch. So lizards definitely are some of the interesting ones to watch in the spring if you ever have time i mean you're down on the coast there coach whips are pretty cool to watch some of these uh these snakes that are just you know hyperactive like coach whips especially um i would say indigo snakes too if you can sit there and watch indigos those things just can't sit still they don't they don't understand that they just they're always just moving i was over in texas one time we watched this indigo um, that thing was about seven feet long, and it just destroyed this all these uh, frogs, these Rio Grande leopard frogs. Man, just I mean, must have ate thirty-five of them. Around yeah. that was all dry, and uh, we were just we were just looking around. We were looking at the frogs, and we were just we were catching a few of them. And all of a sudden, this indigo indigo just comes over the bank and just just comes around the edge and just grabs one, keeps swimming, you know. And, along the edge he's got a frog in his mouth he's looking for the next one and he just swallows down real quick grabs another one you know so and i and i've seen some other cool stuff one time i saw a uh, little skincilla little skink uh the ground skink and it was uh, on top of some leaf litter and man i was just watching i just i climbed out of the water i was up at rainbow river um in north and mid florida there and um when i got out of the water just sitting there resting and um, I watched this ground skink, and there was an explosion from underneath of it. It was a ringneck snake grabs this thing by mid body, and it was like this giant struggle. So when you get to see like uh, herps in action, um, yeah. it's pretty cool. And I also in captivity, I've seen a uh, ringneck snake that was being uh, swallowed by a coral snake, and um, it grabbed the coral snake by the bottom lip and held on, did not let go. Wow held on and venomated that snake and got out of it that's insane that's so cool <laughs> it, took, it took it almost i remember i we fed, I fed the snake to the coral snake and i watched it and it just held on i said well i'm just gonna leave it and uh, came back later on a couple hours later and uh that coral snake was limp around the head area and then that uh that uh green neck was able to get out that's crazy that, that's like I did. I did research with uh, Eastern Kentucky University for a summer, where we we did a behavioral study of copperheads, and we're following this one copperhead around, and it, it's just kind of it's this field, and it's all the way on the other side of the field, and we're watching it, and you know it's kind of putting its head up like like it's 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 sensing something, it's smelling something, and then it starts on the move. So we're we're following it, and it goes up to the base of this tree. And it kind of like looks up the tree. So we look up the tree, and there's a there's another copperhead up on on a branch on the tree, and there's a there's a cicada at the end of the branch. So it goes up and it starts to eat the cicada, um, and then somehow the cicada is able to like wiggle its way out of its mouth, gets out of the mouth, starts crawling down the body of the copperhead. 
So the copperhead's like trying to turn its body and trying to get it. And while, while it does that, it, it actually um, knocks the cicada off and it falls to the ground. And the copperhead that we were following that was on the ground just walks over and eats it. And it oh, was, wow. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I know, and you can't, you, and you, you, you can tell someone, but unless they were there. Right. Like, you're like, man, how does that happen? It's like falls right into their lap, you know, and you see some weird stuff. Like I was telling you guys earlier, I used to watch cottonmouths. And this area where I watch the cottonmouths, it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of like some weird soap opera, man. You just watch them. And they're, they're like always looking for something to eat, and there's always something happening. Like, uh, I remember one time I was watching an otter started coming by, and this otter's got a mud snake. It's chomping, you know, chomping on a mud snake. You know, it's dead. The mud snake's dead. Just chomping on it, but he's just sitting there, just chawing. He kind of takes a rest. And man, one of the cottonmouths smells it, and he's about the cottonmouth's like five feet away or whatever, and just goes over there and starts, you know, gra- grabbing the uh, mud snake. At the same time, this otter. So I forgot about that. It was, just, it was like a little tug of war with an otter for a few seconds, and then the otter just took off and swam off. But that's I, that's what cottonmouths do. They just will. They don't care. They just go over. Hey, what's going on? Let me have have this. And if they lose, they lose. They just kind of sit right there until something else comes around. I I heard that cottonmouths will flag areas like they'll they'll bend like brush or something like that for that are areas for good for um, collecting food and stuff. Have you have you seen that? I haven't seen that, but I mean, as we start to make more observations and we have video uh, cameras that in our hands at all times and things of that nature, we're going to start seeing stuff that, you know, the animals do that we, that, that we could share because we could share the stuff. When I was a kid growing up, I mean, the stuff you see now, you're like, you can, you couldn't even fathom it. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was still people were, did not believe that alligators helped the young out of the nest when I was young. I remember arguing with the older guy and this guy was in the business so I was just like, what? you got to be kidding me. You know, and it was published way before that, but if you didn't read, like, one of the ten books that were out there ever published before, like, 1990, then you weren't going to learn much, you know? Wow. So that, that, that's the thing, too. The resources today are simply amazing. You know, I've watched several videos from colleagues that were actually doing their work in the field before you had to wait two years to see something like that in a slide presentation, you know, Kodachrome slide presentation. Now you can see it in the field right now. So we can get information so much faster. And uh, so when I, when I meet young people, I'm like, you guys have way more information than I had at your age, you know, cause I'm, I'm 50 now. I'm not that old, but you know, after 30 years, I remember, you know, you're thirsty for books and you want to read as much as you can and meet people. Um, so, and then every once in a while you get a paper or two you can read, but other than that, you would, you know, swap libraries. If someone else had a library, you can ask if you can read their stuff. So it just depends, but man, it's amazing what you can watch now and behavior is all over. I remember when YouTube first came on, I would, ca- I would catch some videos and try to post them up there about some of the training that we did. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't go out and post a bunch of stuff on my social media and that, but you know, I do like to film a lot, and I like to watch and use it for documentation. Uh, when you know, whenever I have to do a presentation or write a paper or problem solve, you know, I still do zoo management um, when I can. So I'll you know apply those methods as well. So always observe, observing things. Yeah, the 
The world, I always like to say, the world's a lot weirder, weirder than we think. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, most of this stuff is pretty logical. You know, when I first learned about behavior, my first lesson was, you know, that someone told me, they said stimulus response, and that's pretty it. That's pretty much it. You react to something happening, and that's, that's the beginning of it. No matter what you are, and that's with evolution, the whole nine yards, with how animals are designed, how they eat. Uh, how they behave, breed, mate, whatever. And the other thing, the other part of that lesson was their needs, their primal needs that all living things need, and that's food of some sort, nourishment, you know, or water, um, shelter, and uh, they have to reproduce. So they need sex or love or whatever those things are. Those are primary needs, you know. So when you look at that, those are the motives of all living things, whether it's plants animals or the other kingdoms, you know, funguses and other single-celled organisms that we don't even have any met yet or heard of yet. Yeah, that's what, that's what I find so fascinating is that is the, um, their behavior, like, like just seeing their behavior and then as it relates to like the evolution of it and just like finding out like why, why are they, why do they look like this? Why do they behave like this? And what, what's going on? What's the stimulus that that's causing this response and stuff? I, I find that stuff super fascinating. Yeah, and then the only way to really do it, like back in the day when we when you go herping, you know, you're out to catch things. When I go herping now, you know, I like to go watch things and just follow them around. And sometimes you just have to be extremely patient. I do a lot of uh, wildlife watching, whether it's birds. Um, I watch herps, uh, insects, a little bit of everything. When I usually go into the jungles, I love to watch insects. There, man, there's always something happening. You know, if you take a crap out in the jungle, it lasts for maybe a half hour and it's gone. <laughs> the bugs come out of the woodwork, you know. You'll have dunk beetles come in, everything else. So it's it's just, everything just goes away pretty quick. So there's a job for everything out there. And um, it's amazing how fast things go away. Or you can, you can set down a green leaf, pull it off a bush and set it down on the ground and it's gone. It's very, it's gone and no time flat starts to decompose really quick or something gets it, starts tearing it apart, eating it, using it for something. So there's no waste, especially when you go to a jungle. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, enjoy it. But uh, when I come down to Fort Myers, I'll look you up or whatever, and then, um, you know, we can go do something or whatever. I, I haven't been to Fort Myers in years or Sanibel, and I remember... Uh, when I first started working with crocs and alligators, you know, I know that, that there was a resident uh, male and female down there in Sanibel, and I went to go see them. You know, so I got to see American crocodiles there, and now American crocs are, you know, they're start, starting to move all over the place, so they're really successful in Florida right now because we haven't had any cold weather in a long time. Uh, I didn't know there was actually American crocs in Sanibel. I'll have to check that out now. I think... Um, and I heard a report that there is one. It's not a resident at this time, but it comes and goes quite a bit. Yeah. But there used to be a big male. Um, I've got a, there's a book called Jaws Two by a guy from Fort Myers area, and he wrote it's all about Sanibel and alligators and crocodiles. Sanibel's um, awesome. It's a gorgeous place. Yeah. So I go there all the time for the and stuff. Yeah, that's cool. It looks like it would be a, I've only been there once or twice. Um, I just never make it down that way too, but I've always been on the East coast and you know, it's uh they're night and day. They're totally interesting. Oh yeah, for sure. 
there's a there's a spot up in Cape Coral that's just a, a massive um, I guess it's supposed to be a preserve I don't really know but it's just just mass, it's just empty it's just empty land and I'll I just go out there for hours um, and just walk around I find that's that's mostly where I, where I go herping around here but I find all sorts of there's gopher tor- there's gopher torches everywhere there and there's just I, I find something new like every single time I go there it's pretty cool. That, is, that sounds pretty cool. Um, uh, me and a buddy of mine, uh, Troy, are going to go down to uh, Boca Grande. Are the all the Tinosaurs still down there? I don't know. I actually haven't made my way up to Boca Grande, honestly. They say that uh, there's a bunch of uh, Tinosaurs all over Boca Grande. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. I, I, there's a, I, think, I think there's a guy on YouTube. All he does is shoot them. He's been hired to kill all the... Wow all those uh, lizards and then the, the the neighborhoods don't want him there doing it so it's like this big controversy oh my gosh because yeah. everybody loves them they don't want them out of there but you know FWC is just uh, not interested in having yeah. <laughs> first Florida from you they're going to put all the resources in like that yeah, yeah first Florida community first Florida community I've heard of that wants to keep their iguanas around Well, the West yeah, Coast it, is not the same as the East Coast. The East Coast are all from, like, New York and uh, the East, and I think most of the West Coast people are all from, like, Midwest area, you know, Chicago, places like that. They're a little bit more open to stuff like that. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, the, um, in Fort Myers, I've only seen two iguanas, um, like, in Canal and Fort Myers. I did find a population in, in Cape Coral where I found, like, a bunch of them. Um, but that, that's the only spot in Cape Coral. Otherwise, I'd have to go down to Naples. That's the only spot I really see them on the on the West Coast for the most part. I've seen them um, up, up in uh, Siesta Key. There's a small population in Siesta Key on the north side of the island. Um, and I'm really surprised there's not more than that. I mean, once they you know once they drop some eggs, man, you got yourself another 50 iguanas. So I mean, they, yeah. they, they reproduce pretty quickly. I think um, I think they're. I think I think because Fort Naples is more of like a, it's not a city as Fort Myers is. So I think you just have to like, it's it's harder to get to the areas where you would find them in Fort Myers. I think. Yeah. Um, but I I've like I think there's I think there's a population in that spot in Cape Coral that I um that I go herping at. I think because I've seen one and one of there in like passing, but I don't know. Like I've never seen any other there. But if there's one, there's got to be <laughs> more. So. Um, but yeah, so I, I think they're just in spots where a lot of people don't go. Yeah, South Florida is an interesting place. I don't get to go down there too often. I've never. Uh, we used to go down and collect venom um, in the Everglades and all the way down to Flamingo from pygmy rattlesnakes. And uh, you know, there's just so many pygmies down there. Um, but those those are interesting animals too. I've done some work with those and have. Uh, watch those in the wild up here in uh central florida is some of the densest populations of pygmy rattlesnakes um like 60 per acre in some areas and um yeah and, it, and you usually have to go in the winter time and you have to wait for heavy rains what happens is st john's river um kind of the banks you know if the water rises and forces all these snakes into uh smaller areas 
and it just like concentrates them and they're everywhere you just walk through like these uh palm palm trees and uh you're walking through the watermen they're all just on the boots and everywhere and you just you can just stop and just like do a 360 look around and see within you know just in that eye shot maybe 10 of them wow i remember one time we went i took a friend i was telling him about it he didn't believe me and we go out there and you had to wade in the water to get across um you know up to your chest and then you would get out to that area and so we took all of our you know stuff out of our pockets our wallets and stuff and just kind of stashed them in the bushes and um on the way back you know we had we had uh, seen probably like 30 pygmies in just a small time you know maybe about 30 minutes or so and we got back on my top of my wallet was a pygmy rattlesnake coiled up on top of my stash of bushes i thought that was funny he's trying it's funny yeah so yeah they're pretty cool well hey guys i have to run i'm gonna have to get up early i'm gonna go surfing with a buddy of mine up in uh new smyrna beach but uh matt i'll definitely try to get a hold of you i'm gonna be there on monday tuesday and wednesday yeah for sure um and yeah that looks like a good spot to to stop i'll get your i, th- I think uh i actually don't have your number i think uh, nate has it though so i'll get it from nate i have your i have your email i don't have anything else sorry yeah i'll I'll text you my uh my information too uh, if you want to pass that to matt will do yeah i'll definitely make sure to definitely make sure to contact you when i try and start up my uh reptile park or try to get croc permits and everything so all right cool yeah if you guys ever have any questions or anybody has questions out there um feel free to you know hit me up i'll be glad to try to help out and answer anything um if you ask around i always try to help people out and uh Sometimes it's not always orthodox. So, um, but because if you're trying, to, if you want something done, sometimes you have to be really creative. Yeah. And uh, but um, there are a lot of ways to do things, and it's just you just have to read the fine print and the laws and the regulations, and you can get get done whatever you want to get done. Cool. Yeah. Sounds great. All right. Well, uh, it was great talking with you guys. Um, nice meeting you both, and um, yeah. you know, hopefully I'll see you this week, Matt. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for for joining the show.